0: Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. Delay here as I have my stopwatch, which is a relief to some of you. <laughs> is if I pay it any attention at all. <laughs> Just kidding. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, speaking of his heavenly glory. Yet for your sakes, he became poor, speaking of his incarnation, his birth, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son and the time that is set aside in our culture and in the world to acknowledge that, the gift of a Savior and a human history. We thank you for what we understand related to that and we thank you for what we can understand even as Pastor Gordon has prayed, there's so much that is just pure mystery that perhaps we'll understand one day. But we want to understand what we can and we want to understand with the idea that it would give us an even greater awe and appreciation for what you have done for us and translate into an even greater thanksgiving and praise in our lives toward you. And we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit through your word in our lives to produce just that this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The word magnificent is a word that is uh, rarely used within our culture and uh, probably because there is so uh, little within our culture that and in the world as a whole that can be uh, truly described as magnificent. The word magnificent means impressively beautiful, something that is so beautiful that it leaves an impression upon you. Uh, It is something that is striking. The beauty of it uh, hits you like a ton uh, of bricks. The physical circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth couldn't have been uh, any simpler than they were. Here you have Jesus born in the city of Bethlehem, no room for him in any kind of accommodation within the city, he's born in an animal shelter, he ends up being wrapped in swaddling clothes and so forth. But not everything in life is as it appears outwardly and we're rightly told that and that saying is never more true than concerning the birth of Jesus into human history. The backstory, the full story associated with his birth his coming into the world as a savior to provide us with salvation, the perfection of that salvation, the perfection of the savior that he is is nothing less than magnificent. When I think about our salvation, very often I think about our salvation in terms of a ride Uh, At Disneyland. Uh, For instance, if you were to take uh, the ride, the Pirates of the Caribbean, the ride itself is a marvel to sit in that boat and to go through floating on your way through that ride. I will never forget the first time uh, that I was on that ride as a young adult and you're in that bayou in the early part of Uh, of that ride and the crickets and the sounds and the deep south and and uh, Louisiana represented there and all and then it moves on to cannon battles involving ships and forts and so forth but as amazing as the ride is in terms of what you can see and what you can experience from the boat equally amazing is the substructure that makes the ride possible The substructure that you never see that makes, uh, that supports all of it. The underground electrical system, uh, the water systems, the pumps, the miles and miles of cables, the computer networks and so forth. There is a virtual city uh, that is its own marvel that lies underneath the ground uh, there at uh, Disneyland and it's its own marvel of wisdom. And design. And our salvation is just such a marvel that we were our sinners, we've been separated from the very thing that we've been created for and that is a relationship with God uh, by our sin and uh, destined as a result for a very very righteous judgment. And then God in his love, he sent us a savior, Jesus, who came as the old saying goes, to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. And he did so uh, out of his death, burial, and his resurrection and provides us with a salvation that is such a marvel it uh, overwhelms our past and our present and and our future. And that is enough. I mean, that is the ride. I mean, if we never dug down any deeper uh, into that salvation, it'd be enough to uh, produce within us praise and thanksgiving to offer up to God for a thousand lifetimes. But the substructure is its own marvel and its own cause for praise and worship to God. And the substructure of this salvation is the Old Testament. It is the foundation for the New Testament and its fulfillment on the basis of Jesus in his birth, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. As Jesus declared to the religious leaders of his day, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify. Of me. And so, this substructure of the Old Testament, complete with its prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, complete with Jesus, all of the uh, temple and the tabernacle that preceded it, all of the furnishings, all of the dimensions, all of it, types of Him, every sacrifice in the Old Testament, all of the Jewish feasts and so forth, all a foundation for Jesus who would come into the world. In the law of Moses, we find a very interesting series of laws having to do with what is referred to as the near relative, or as the kinsman redeemer. And redeemer, biblically speaking, speaks of uh, someone who is able to release another from their bondage and slavery upon the payment of a ransom. And concerning this Old Testament series of laws having to do with the kinsman redeemer, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25, Moses declares, If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possessions and and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother has sold. In other words, if a Jewish man fell upon hard times, and maybe because of drought or uh, because of some other natural catastrophe. As a result, he has two or three years of, of no crops. And then he puts up his loan asset, his land, as collateral for a loan from uh, a Jewish person outside of the family in order to get seed to plant for the coming year or in order to for he and his family to survive with food. Uh, through the coming year uh, and because of of the difficulty of the circumstances God made a provision in the law for a blood relative a kinsman redeemer to step in on behalf of the indebted family member and then pay that debt himself and then redeem the land back into the family and back to the original owner because if the land was lost due to debt it would almost certainly be lost permanently not only to the immediate family that sold the land but the larger family as a whole and that would represent a massive blow to the future of that family and so this law of the kinsman redeemer along with the law of the year of Jubilee and the law of Moses, was designed to prevent the oppression of one another. To prevent over time most of the land in Israel being owned by a relatively small number of wealthy and powerful people and uh, the almost inevitable thing that follows that in a nation and that is the oppression of others that occurs as a result. God didn't want that kind of concentration of wealth at the expense of others among his people. Even if you had a man, even if you had a husband or a father who uh, sold his land uh, to another, and he did so because of his own sloth, because of his own laziness, just a good-for-nothing, and he secures now a loan from someone outside of the family due to his <clears throat> slothfulness. He puts up his land, as collateral. A blood relative, a kinsman redeemer could step in, pay off the land, redeem the land back into the family and to the original owner. In order that uh, one man's sinful lifestyle, one man's foolish decision... Uh, making would not then then doom a family to poverty uh, forever. And so having then nothing to call their own, uh, no land from which to earn a living going forward, and all because of one incompetent generation, one incompetent head uh, of the family." And then beyond even these two examples, it included the protection of a family from any kind of natural catastrophe that might occur within the family, assuring that the land would always remain in the family, that they could hold on to the land and over time recover whatever catastrophe would occur in life. And the law was very, very compassionate and very, very wise. The second... <clears throat> aspect concerning uh, the kinsman redeemer me a second aspect concerning the kinsman redeemer and the law of moses involved the temptation uh, the redemption rather of a person who sold themselves not their land but they sold themselves into slavery so here you have an israelite He comes upon poverty, comes upon difficulty within his life and he has no land or perhaps he's already sold that land as collateral for a a loan. And so he becomes indebted now uh, to a a Jewish person outside of the family. He's unable to pay it off and then uh, uh, no longer having land to sell. And so he could sell himself to a creditor as a servant or as a slave in order to then work off his debt. He could only indenture himself for a maximum period of seven years or until the year of Jubilee uh, occurred. However, if a blood relative or a kinsman redeemer had the ability uh, to pay off the man's debt, the relative's debt, and secure his release from bondage to redeem him, he could do so and then the creditor was always obliged then uh, to re, uh, uh, release him from his, his bondage. A third aspect concerning the kinsman redeemer in the law of Moses was the Levite marriage, Deuteronomy chapter 25. If a Jewish man married a, uh, a, a, a wife and then he died for some reason, before they had children. Uh, She was left uh, not only now a widow, but childless. The widow was never to be forced outside of the family and uh, in order to remarry outside the family. But the oldest brother uh, uh, of, of the deceased was then to take her as wife in order that she would become pregnant. Her firstborn child would then be named after the dead brother. So this sounds uh, very strange to our modern uh, ears where today we have so much support structure within our culture even though it's diminishing uh, presently where a widow has ample support to survive the death of her husband and to survive the death of her husband uh, even without children. But in the ancient world you are on your own In the ancient world, your family was your social security. And so, without a husband and without a son uh, to care for her in her old age, it almost guaranteed that she would die in poverty. The law was also given in order that uh, the man's, the deceased brother's name, would not cease in poverty. Uh, Israel it wouldn't be blotted out from Israel so that the family name would be preserved so that his name would not disappear in the history of the children of Israel and it uh, also kept his name from permanently passing out of the family and so if the older brother who was to take her as wife now and raise up a son to the deceased brother if he he, uh, refused his responsibility to his deceased brother in this way and he was free to do it. He would then be brought before the elders of the city to confirm his refusal. Uh, this would have been considered an, an, uh, an insult uh, to the widow and so she would remove a sandal from his foot, spit on the ground before him, and uh, spitting in the ancient world was as much an insult as it, as it is. Uh, <clears throat> In the modern world, and so the idea was that he had publicly insulted her in refusing to take her as wife, and she was then given uh, the final public insult in the matter. And so the situation was left not with the stigma left upon her, but the stigma left upon uh, the man uh, himself for his refusal. He could refuse, but there were serious consequences for doing so. And then the next nearest blood relative to the deceased would uh, then uh, be compelled to marry her, and that was typically the next youngest brother and You might remember this is the the situation that the Sadducees brought up to Jesus in an attempt to uh, trap him over this uh, woman who was married to a brother, and then uh, each one died uh, sequentially and uh, until all seven had. Uh, had her as wife and yet there were no children and whose wife would she be uh, in the resurrection and this is the passage that they're referring to and so the four requirements of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament was first he needed to be related by blood to the one that he came to redeem second he had to be free himself Uh, if he were not free he wouldn't be able to free another And third, he had to have the price of redemption. And then fourth, he had to be willing to pay the price of redemption. We find all of this wonderfully on display uh, in the Old Testament book of Ruth, where you have a man by the name of Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, who leave uh, Judah. They leave the city of Bethlehem, which was their home. There's a great famine in Judah at that time. And so they uh, have uh, presumably and surely, uh, in order to try and survive the fam- famine, they uh, sold their land uh, in order to get some money to survive. Uh, the famine outlives what they could live on with the selling of their land to uh, a- another. And so they were forced to leave Judah and uh, then. Uh, go out into, emigrate into Moab, which is modern-day Jordan, to find food. And so here they are, uh, mere survival on their minds in terms of this uh, famine. They left and went into Moab with their adult sons, Malon and Chilion. There'll be a test related to the names involved at the end of the sermon. Their stay in Moab was lengthy enough, ten years, that Elimelech. Uh, Naomi's husband, he died first, but then so did uh, 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 Malon and Chilion, each of them died uh, but not until after they had married Moabite women, uh, a wom- women by the name of Oprah and uh, uh, Ruth, and ultimately as both sons died in the land of Moab they left their wives not only as widows but Uh, childless. And one day Naomi got news that the famine had ended in Judah. There was bread. God blessed them with food once again. And all of this takes place during the time of the judges. No doubt that drought uh, and that famine had occurred as a result of God's judgment upon them in the whole cycle of, of the book of Judges. And so she decides, Naomi does, that she's going to return home. She encourages both of her daughters-in-law that they need to go back to their families, remain in Moab, go back to the homes of your mothers, and then she pronounced a blessing upon them that they would each remarry and, uh, and enjoy a life of peace. Orpah Uh, heeded the encouragement to return home, and uh, she did that. However, Ruth insisted upon uh, accompanying Naomi to Bethlehem. And she committed to making Naomi's people, the Jewish people, uh, her people as well, uh, though a Moabite. Well, they go back to the land of Judah, and uh, and if you uh, didn't work, you didn't eat in those days and uh, so that meant you had to work and so it was the time of the grain harvest ruth went out to glean uh, the fields of a very wealthy man by the name of boaz who was related to uh, uh, naomi and thus a near kinsman of uh, ruth well to make a long and very wonderful story short boaz takes note of ruth of ruth because of her character and because She was a part of the family by virtue of being married to her deceased husband. He made sure that she gleaned in his fields. She made sure that the gleaners uh, left uh, 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 an extraordinary amount of grain on the ground for her to be able to uh, glean afterwards as they followed the, the harvesters in the harvest. And at the conclusion of the harvest, Naomi instructed Ruth concerning how to make uh, known to Boaz uh, as her near kinsman that she should uh, be taken under his wing. That is, she should be married by Boaz, produce a son so that the deceased husband's name would not be lost in Israel. And when Ruth does that, Boaz informed her that he would be delighted to take that position in her life, but that he was not the nearest kinsman. He was not the closest blood relative to, Ru- to Ruth or her deceased husband. There was one other individual uh, who was a closer uh, a relative, and uh, thus the right to marry Ruth, redeem the land that Elimelech and Naomi had sold before leaving uh, from Moab, it belonged to him. But that if the Boaz said, if the nearest kinsman is not willing to redeem you, then I will gladly uh, do so. And so the near kinsman was brought before the elders or the the, uh, 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 officials of the city of Bethlehem. And uh, Boaz was in attendance as well. Boaz informed the near kinsmen that this is the situation. They've come back from Moab. Elimelech's land is able to be uh, redeemed back into the family. And uh, he had the first right to do that. And he jumped at the chance to do so. And at that point, uh, Boaz, very careful, uh, a clever man, he then introduced the complication. That it wasn't just about redeeming the land, but it also meant that this near kinsman would need to marry Ruth and raise up a child uh, to continue the name of her deceased uh, husband. Well, he wanted the land, he was, but he's not interested in marrying her at all. He's not interested in the second requirement of the kinsman redeemer. And so he said, I'm out. It'll mess up my inheritance. It'll mess up my uh, existing family and uh, so he tells Boaz, you can uh, take the land and redeem it and you can marry her, and Boaz quickly agreed to it. And so the first kinsman, he failed to qualify as Ruth's kinsman redeemer because while he possessed the wealth to redeem her and to redeem the land, uh, he was unwilling to do so. And in contrast, Boaz was both able to do so and willing to do so, and so he became uh, Ruth's kinsman-redeemer. Interestingly, not only did Boaz then marry Ruth, and they lived happily ever after, after, by the way, but they then gave birth to a son named Obed, who then gave birth to a son by the name of Jesse who then gave birth to a son by the name of David, who would become the king uh, of Israel, and whose bloodline, Jesus himself, would be born into the world through. And as a result of this, forever and ever, Jesus' name uh, is linked with this law of the kinsman-redeemer. And none of it is at all by accident. Because while the book of Ruth constitutes this wonderful illustration of the law of the kinsman redeemer, Jesus constitutes its fulfillment and and, uh, as we're uh, uh, in, in the fulfillment of it. Like everything else in the Old Testament, we find this law of the kinsman redeemer fulfilled in Jesus, in his birth, in his incarnation as the savior of the world. Number one, a kinsman redeemer had to be a near kinsman, had to be related uh, uh, by blood to the one he came to redeem. So again, in the book of Ruth, Boaz was able to redeem the land uh, sold by the deceased family uh, of of Ruth because he was a, a blood relative. In the same way, Jesus was able to redeem not only a plot of land, somewhere on the face of, uh, of the Middle East and in, in the land of Israel, but the entire world that Adam and Eve had sold into slavery and sold to the devil in the Garden of Eden. And he did so by becoming a blood relative of man through his incarnation, through his birth into the world uh, in, in human flesh. Sometimes people wonder why it was necessary for Jesus to be born into the world. Why was it necessary for his incarnation to take place? Why did he have to take on human flesh in order to provide salvation for mankind? Why didn't he come in a flaming chariot from the heavens? Why didn't some gigantic intergalactic spaceship come down to the earth and deliver Jesus into into human history, or why didn't he come into the world through some other dramatic means? And more specifically, why was it necessary for Jesus to come into the world to take on human flesh in order to provide salvation for mankind? And one of the answers is, in order to be related by blood to those he came to redeem, And as required by the law of the kinsman redeemer. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 4 verse 3. He said, even so we, uh, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Another reason is Jesus came as he came in order to die. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels that is in his incarnation for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And so Jesus took on human flesh in order to experience death for the very purpose of dying, uh, he, uh, in, in order to die for our sins. If he was fully God and he was not fully man. Not only could he not have died for our sins, he couldn't have died at all. He needed to become a man as well in order to do so. And so our salvation required his incarnation. Paul writes of this again in Colossians chapter 1 verse 21. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his side, sight. Paul writes again in this vein, Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Again, the verse that we began with, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor in his incarnation, that you through his poverty, his incarnation, might become uh, rich. The second requirement of a kinsman redeemer is that he had to be free himself. Uh, If he was not free from uh, debt, uh, then he wouldn't be in any kind of a position to pay off the debt of another. And so concerning Jesus as our kinsman-redeemer, he needed to be free, not merely financially. He needed to be free of the curse of sin in order to redeem us from our sin. Boaz was qualified to pay off the financial debt associated with the land belonging to Ruth's family because he was not in financial debt uh, himself. And in the same way, Jesus was qualified to pay off the spiritual debt owed because of man's sin, because he was sinless. He was free from the curse of sin. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God uh, in him. Someone might ask, isn't it enough that I believe Jesus to be merely a good person or to be a great teacher or uh, uh, to be a great example as opposed to believing him to be divine or believing him to be uh, the son of God? And the answer is no, because if that's all he was, then our sin problem would remain unresolved. Because one who is merely a good person or a good teacher or a good example isn't qualified to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins. It's because Jesus is divine that he is also sinless. And the sinlessness of Jesus is essential to our salvation because a sinner cannot be the Savior of other sinners. He would need a savior himself in the same way that a drowning man is incapable of saving another drowning person. It was his sinlessness that uniquely qualified Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. Which brings us to the third requirement, that a kinsman redeemer had to possess the price of redemption. He had to possess a wealth that was greater than the debt of the one he was going to redeem. Boaz possessed a wealth that was greater than Naomi and Ruth's debt. And in the same way, spiritually speaking, Jesus possessed a wealth that was greater than all of the spiritual uh, debt of mankind due to our sin and he alone possessed the price required to redeem us from the penalty of our sins and from the bondage of our sin and at what price his blood his sinless life ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Peter put it famously in his first epistle, chapter one, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed, there's that word again, with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Only Jesus' death on the cross provides mankind with the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. That's called the propitiation, the full and satisfying payment. John wrote in his first epistle of Jesus, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. And then fourth, a kinsman redeemer had to perform his work of redemption willingly. Willing to pay any price in order to redeem others. And we remember that the first kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth, he was not willing to perform the work of redemption. Boaz was. And the same thing is true in a greater way, in an immeasurable way uh, of Jesus. When Jesus declared in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. Jesus again in John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And that statement that Jesus makes concerning his love behind this redemption, he reveals why he performed this work of redemption willingly. What was the motivation of the Father's heart, of his heart, in everything that he did for, and taught for 33 and a half years, spanning from his birth Through all of his life, to his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension back into the glory uh, uh, of heaven to prepare it uh, for us. And what was the motivation that lay at at the foundation of all of it? And the motivation, Jesus says, was and is love. There is nothing, I confess that so silences me and mystifies me in all of the world than the love of God. The righteousness of God makes perfect sense to me. The holiness of God makes perfect sense to me. The perfection of God makes complete sense to me. But the love of God for me for us for mankind a love that is greater than all of our sin all of our rebellion all of our weaknesses all of our fallenness and brokenness and that is willing then to pay such a price such a personal price in order to uh, provide for our salvation and to uh, express it in this love I'm afraid I'm no closer to making a dent and understanding the love of God today than ever I understood it 42 years ago when I first became a uh, Christian. And I think the entire reason for that is that it isn't intended to be understood completely or supremely, inasmuch as it is to just simply be accepted to accept the love of God that is behind the marvel of this kinsman redeemer that is our Savior and for it to produce the worship and the praise that we see delivered by uh, the heavenly host on the morning of his birth glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And so this morning as we consider Christmas, praise the Lord that there is something greater than all of our guilt and all of our sin. And that is the love of God expressed in the provision of a savior. And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, The old saying is God loves you just the way that you are but He loves you too much to leave you in that condition. And the first step that you want to take in order to come out of the sinful condition that you're in the consequences of sin that are eternal and they weigh upon you is to trust in this Savior this morning. To trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and allow Him and His forgiveness to become a part of your life. And if you've never done that before, we'll be up in front immediately after the service and would love to answer your questions and pray with you to receive the entire meaning of the Christmas season and the giving by God the Father of His Son to provide you with the forgiveness of sins so you might then have a relationship with God and the everlasting life that comes with it. And so, this morning, I know that um, in looking at something on Christmas like the Kinsman Redeemer, that it demands a little bit of the listener. And I've noticed on some of your faces that it demanded a little bit of the listener, but think about it. In terms of any ride in any amusement park or in Disneyland, what is on the surface, What we see in that scene in Bethlehem is a marvel. But the substructure, the foundation for it, is its own marvel and its own cause for thanksgiving and worship and praise this time of year as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your gift of a Savior to us. We thank you for our kinsman redeemer. We thank you for providing us with redemption from the sin that was not only destroying us and ruining this life, but had the potential to take us into an eternity separated from you. And Father, this morning, we thank you for the love that is behind all of it. We marvel at your love for us and we marvel at the price you were willing to pay in order to express that love in a tangible and in the most needed way to mankind as a whole, and to us individually. We give you praise. We give you our thanks. We say glory to you in the highest for all that this Christmas season represents at its foundation, what it really represents, not in terms of what cultures make it into, but in terms of how it is viewed from your throne and we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit that gives us an appreciation an ever-increasing measure as we continue our pilgrimage in this world of the greatness of that love. It leaves us humble, it leaves us in awe, and it leaves us grateful. Thank you, Father. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.